Well, welcome to City Church, whether this is your first time or you call City Church home. Uh, for you guys who don't know me, my name is Clayton Feltz. I get the, uh, the humble, humble excuse me, privilege of serving as the associate pastor here. And so this morning, we're in this series about rhythms that we've started the new year on. And we, we began with this idea of that in 2023, it is better to create new rhythms or new disciplines instead of setting goals. And so we began the, the series with this idea of abiding in Jesus. That John 15 talks about that, that we are to abide in him, not do something for him. And then last week, Pastor Billy uh, preached on how this new idea of, of Christian life is an idea of servant leadership. That we as Jesus followers are to serve one another. And so you had abiding, you have serving, and all those things are awesome. But what I'm going to end the series in this morning is that we are to do that together. That the Christian life, to be fully human, is a life in community. Just over 100 years ago, January 16th, 1919, the United States put in place the 18th Amendment. Now, this is not a civics class, so I'm not going to test you. I'm not going to ask you, what is the 18th Amendment? Um, honestly, I, I think most people uh, probably wouldn't know. I love history, and I had to go look it up because I was like, what was it? Because the truth is, the 18th Amendment is no longer law. It changed with the 21st Amendment. The 18th Amendment was put in place, and on January 16th, 1919, it began prohibition in the United States. And it's interesting, when you think about that, the United States has had alcohol throughout its history. Prohibition is no longer now, but even when the country first was founded, there was alcohol. In fact, it was Ben Franklin who said one of the ways he thought God loved him was because beer was created. Now, I wouldn't say that's great theology, but it is fact that it was around. And so how did we go from that and how we are now also to this stretch of time where Americans not just thought something was needed, but needed to a point where a constitutional amendment had to be added. The truth is, in 2023, I don't know of a single issue Americans can agree on that we could rally around, Congress could pass, and two-thirds of the state could ratify to put into the Constitution. And yet, 100 years ago, just over 100 years ago, they did. And so when I looked this up, here's what was going on. At the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century, America was going through a massive change. You had the post-Civil War era, and people were recovering from that. And what was really happening is this time where we were going from an agrarian society to an industrial society, that people were moving from the, from the small farm and the small towns to now it was shifting where you could go work into cities. And so people were migrating into cities. Many people were coming to America to work. And those who were left behind just felt uneasy, they felt hopeless, and they felt lonely. And so what did they turn to? To numb their pain? Alcohol. They turned to alcohol, which is why over 80% of the country at the time, 
was in favor of prohibition because politics is always downstream from culture. And so this happens. And prohibition is put in place for the time it was. And we like to look through history through the lens of our own eyes going, oh, well, that's back then. That's not like what we live in now. And the truth is what they were shifting then over a 50-year period, we are experiencing similarities over probably a five-year period. That we have left the industrial revolution and we've essentially gone into a technology economy or even now, even more an attention economy. That everything is personalized. Everything is what I need it to be. And we have the tools and the money to make it that way. That really, the economy is to keep your attention. That's why things have gone digital. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But in times of massive change, like they experienced when Prohibition was starting, we also are experiencing. We are experiencing a problem. And that problem is loneliness. Loneliness. What our grandparents would look at us now and see the progress we've made, they would be very surprised with all the technology, all the money, all the resources, all the comfort we have in 2023, and they would be surprised how many people are struggling. I mean, I'm, I can't imagine if they just thought, you, you mean you can stay connected with people all around the world? I mean, that's unbelievable. Like, you, you, can, you can actually, like, work from home, and, like, you don't have to go anywhere. Like, you have air conditioning. Like, all these things that they would look at and go, you've made it, and yet... Statistically, we as Americans are more lonely than we've ever been in history. Robert Putnam, who's a Harvard University professor and writer, wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And his premise is when he looks at traditional institutions over the last century, that since the 1950s, church attendance has been cut in half. And it's not just church. He says all social clubs have been going in decline. Right? That's why his book is Bowling Alone. Anybody know anyone in a bowling league? Anybody? No. Right? He would say the Elks Club and country clubs and all types of local civic uh, organizations are now in decline. Why? Why, he said, because we have more choice than ever. That we don't have to commit to something. In fact, I just read recently in Axios that it's not just social clubs. That sports attendance is also down. Now, my first thought when I heard that is because it's the because the Falcons are no good. Who wants to go to their games? But the truth is, a lot of people go to the University of Georgia football games. But most sports, most colleges, and most professional teams, attendance is down. The people aren't even going to that as much. And these early results of Individualism, as they play out, continue to just cause a problem. In Britain, former Prime Minister Theresa May found out that 20% of people in Great Britain were identifying as radically lonely to a point where she appointed as a member of her cabinet a minister of loneliness. And before I pick on the Brits, it's worse in America that the recent Gallup poll done last year finds that 35% of Americans identify as radically lonely. 
35%. That's like one in three of you. Only 8% of Americans have reported having a conversation with a neighbor in the previous year. 8%. And we know this is a problem for our health. That loneliness leads to depression, anxiety, higher cardiovascular disease, dementia. These things are hard on us. One medical professional put it this way, it puts so much stress on you if you feel this way, that it would be the equivalent of you smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And don't just take my word for it. I'm going to put this on the screen. It's a quote from a book from a recent U.S. Surgeon General when he wrote a book called Together the Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. And here's what he said. Our 21st century world demands that we focus on pursuits that are constantly competing for our time, attention, energy, and commitment. Many of these pursuits are themselves competition. We compete for jobs and status. We compete over possessions, money, and reputation. We strive to stay afloat and to get ahead. Meanwhile, the relationships we claim to prize often get neglected in the chase. Social media fosters a culture of comparison. We are constantly measuring ourselves against others, um, <clears throat> excuse me, other users' bodies, wardrobes, cooking, houses, vacations, children, pets, hobbies, and thoughts about the world. When I was a Surgeon General, I spent a lot of time talking to people in living rooms and town halls all across the country, and one of the things I started to notice was that behind many of the stories of addiction, violence, depression, and anxiety were threads of loneliness. Loneliness. I know that's not an optimistic way to start a sermon. But I want you to get the seriousness of it. Because I'm sure in this room, there are people who feel this. And even if that's not you, I want you to understand the world we're in right now. The world that knows all about the darkness, but not about the light. So this morning, I want to ask you this. Do you feel lonely? Do you feel lonely? Do you feel known, truly known? Like, does someone truly knew you? Not the version of you you want them to know. Do they truly know you? And do you have hope that this can get better? That's where we're at. Guys, this idea of true individualism has created freedom and autonomy, but it's not playing out so well. And so if that's the problem, I want to look at the solution. So that's what I want to look at this morning. The solution to be fully human, to be fully known, is not to be alone. It is to live in community. It is to live in community. It is what you and I are made for. You and I are not meant to be alone. From the very beginning, God himself is a triune God that is Father, Son, and Spirit. They're together, delighting together in the Trinity, in fellowship, in genuine love with one another. It is why John talks about that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, that there is Jesus in the beginning. It's why Genesis 1 talks about the Spirit was hovering over the earth, that out of that abundance of love, 
the Father, Son, and Spirit are communing together, God creates us to experience the same thing. God didn't create us because he's a needy God. He's a needy deity who needs just, I need to create humans to worship me. No, God created us to experience the love that he has. And so as we love him, we are in relationship with him, but we are also made to be in relationship with one another. Genesis 2 talks about this in verse 18. He says, then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, not out of the ground of the, excuse me, not now, sorry, out of the ground the Lord God has formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. That God has made Adam, and Adam is in relationship with the Lord, and, and God knows it is not good for Adam just to be Adam. And so here is all of creation, and Adam has work and responsibility. We are actually made for that before the fall. You see that right there. But Adam realizes, man, there's still something missing. I'm made for, for God, absolutely, but there's just something. I need something. And God in his love continues in verse 21. So the Lord God calls the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And this is a beautiful picture. Look, this is a beautiful picture that God has taken half of man and created Eve, and they are together. They are made together. It's a beautiful picture of marriage, right? That there's a beautiful picture of godly marriage here, man and woman together. But it's not just marriage. It's not just marriage. Because if it was only marriage, then if the only way to have true relationship, to be truly known is for you to get married, then there's some people we need to talk about in God's word that never got married. Champions of faith, like Paul. Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Never married. Jesus himself, never married. And yet Paul and Jesus and others are made not to be alone, but be in relationship with one another. In fact, that's what I want to look at, really. I want to look at the way Jesus lived in community because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we love that he gives us life. We know that he is true, but too often we sometimes miss the way Jesus lived his life. And Jesus did a few things. One of the things he did was he was in community. He's been in community from the beginning and he continued that in his time on earth. So Matthew 22 is our main text. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. And when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now that's a bad move. Right? Like, I don't care how smart you are, you're not going to get Jesus. But he does, he tries, and he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And sometimes when Jesus is asked these leading questions by the Pharisees or, or those within that tribe, then Jesus will answer them in a way that just is like, whoa. Almost like a little Jesus juke. And, and Jesus doesn't. He actually gives the expected answer here. 
And so they asked him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And these verses here would be familiar to that audience that, man, you are to love God with everything. Right? Everything. All of you. Your entire being. It is what you were made to be. You were made for God and God loves you and you are to love him with everything you have. But Jesus didn't stop there. He gave him another one. You are to love your neighbor, your neighbor as yourself, right? In Greek, it's this word pleison. It's this idea that, that it is my fellow brother or my fellow sister, my fellow neighbor. It's the person that I am supposed to do this with. It's what you and I were made to do, that we were made to love God with everything we have, everything we do. And we are, do it, we are to do it with others, too. We are to do it with others. And so Jesus himself went back and forth in this rhythm. He went back and forth in this rhythm of being in community with God, communing with the Father, going out to solitude and praying with the Father, and then he would go back into community with his disciples. And so throughout the gospel, you look at all four gospels, you see Jesus living this way, that he was always in prayer with the Father, communing with him, but he didn't stay there. He went and broke bread and prayed and taught and lived with his disciples. And so we as disciples of Christ, we as his apprentices, are to do the same. But too often we mistake community for what we think community should be instead of what true gospel community is. So I want to give you quickly a few things what community is not. Number one, we mistake connection for gospel community. That we think community equals connection. And I'm not saying there isn't connection in community, but we think that's what gospel community is, right? Like we live in a world where there's digital community always, but what I would say is digital community is not really community at all. That the proximity to the people you're around that God has placed you in matters. I have a friend. He's a, a longtime friend of mine. He, um, he and I go way back to we were kids. He was the best man at my wedding. I was the best man at his wedding. Man, I love this brother. He doesn't live here. He lives where I grew up. And as great as it is that technology and, 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 and the digital ways that we can stay connected is awesome, man, he doesn't know the day-to-day -day ins and outs of my life. And it's not because I'm not willing to share them. He just isn't here. And so... He doesn't get to interact with me weekly like you guys do. And so we spend a ton of time on digital technology thinking we have this idea of community with people, but often the question is how much time do you spend with people face-to-face? -face? Like I'm not anti-technology. I'm literally preaching from an iPad. I'm not. But I'm saying gospel community it's more than just connection. In her book, Reclaiming Conversations, MIT media scholar Cheryl Turkett says this, face-to-face -face is the most human thing we do when we are fully present, which I'm not always great at, guys. We learn to listen, and it is where we develop the capacity for empathy. 
Like she did all this study, and here's what she came to. We are great at personalization. We're just not very good at paying attention to a person. And yet we were designed and made to know others and to be fully known. That's what we're designed for. And that's what Jesus modeled. It's what Andy Crouch talks about when he says every human person is a heart, soul, mind, strength complex designed to love. Designed to love. Technology is great. It can't love you back. That takes a person. From the very first moments of our lives, we are brought into this world with someone near us. Not alone. One of the most eerie stories I ever heard was Russell Moore, who's a um, a theologian, editor of Christianity Today now. He and his wife adopted a, a son from the former Soviet Union. And he said they went to the orphanage in Russia and no baby cried. Room full of babies and no baby cried. How heartbreaking that is. That those babies had no, no connection with other people in a community that they had stopped having hope in Christ. Because we're made for it. We're made for it. The second mistake we can make with gospel communities, we make the mistakes chemistry. Chemistry is something that equals gospel community. And chemistry is this. Chemistry is what I would describe as this idea that it's like we, we connect in a way that it's almost like a spark. Like you walk into a room and you have like an instant connection with someone. Like it's more than just, hey, like, oh, I see that guy and there, there's some proximity there. It's like, hey, we have common interests. Like we like the same things. We have the same ideas. Maybe it's the same sports team. Maybe it's the same books or music or maybe my kids go to the same school. Like, like it just sparks. It's just easy. Like I could talk to that person all day long. And look, gospel community may have, may have chemistry, but it's not what, what community completely is, right? If that was the case, listen, if it was all about chemistry, then why would I be in a room full of Georgia fans? I'm a Tennessee guy. Come on, guys. There's no chemistry there. It's hard enough. At least you're not Alabama fans, I guess. All right? Like, we think that's, oh, we've got to all align. We've all got to get along. That's what gospel community is. And so we base it on chemistry, not on what it really is. It's why Matthew 10, I love Matthew 10, when Jesus is, is, is saying, hey, here are the 12 apostles. And he gets to the, the first assignment called Peter and Andrew, his brother James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who portrayed him. And he names two people in all the apostles of what they did. Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot. And they were on polar opposites of the scale, right? Matthew is getting paid by Rome to be a tax collector. Simon's goal is for his extremists to murder and disrupt Rome. I mean, complete opposites. There is no chemistry. I mean, honestly, how are those mills? And yet, these are the people Jesus calls into community with him, whether they had chemistry or not. It's a beautiful picture. And so those are ways we mistake gospel community. So I want to give you what I think gospel community is. Gospel community is people that you live by and you follow Jesus with. That you live by and you follow Jesus with. That if you're following Jesus by the people in this room, because this is where God has placed us, 
And this is your gospel community. Not a community online. That's great. Do that. Stay connected. But that's not as much of gospel community. And I think there's one reason why people don't want to engage in community like this. One reason. Fear. Fear. Fear is what stops us. Fear is what stops us. Because here's the thing. It's great to have friends. It's great to hang out. But man, when you've got to sit with other people and really be vulnerable, really be open, really have that sense of, man, what if they know all of me? Not what I want them to know, but what if I am fully known, even though that's what I'm made to be? Man, that's scary. Because people are hard. People are difficult. People can let you down. People are sinful. People can judge. Man, I get it. It's a high price to go through, but it is what you and I were made to do, right? In Matthew 22, Jesus is saying, man, I want you to love God with everything you have. Don't hold back. It's all of it. But man, you are to love your neighbor like that too. And listen, I get it too. Sometimes it's the fear of, man, what if something else comes that's good? What if, it's, what's something, what if something else comes that's better? Right? It may. It may seem like that. But it's not what you were made for. I love the scene where Jesus is calling people and, and there's a guy who says, Jesus, I'll come follow you, but man, let me go bury my, de- bury my dead, bury my father, is how he puts it. And it's not that his father was actually dead. It's this picture of, of him saying, let me go get my house in order. Let my dad pass the stuff to me, and then I'll go follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. Come, follow me. It's a high price, guys. At the end of the day, here's my question. Are you and I, are you and I willing to give up everything, follow Jesus, and be a part of his community? Listen, I know it's hard. And I know we have this ideal thing in our head of what community should be and should look like. And it should just all be easy and comfy and we should have great food. And I'm not against that. And we should get along and we should get along. But listen, it's not just a social club. It's more than that. And it's what you and I were made for to be fully human. It's what Bonhoeffer described in his book, Life Together. When he talked about the man, God didn't make this person as I would have made him. He did not give him to me as a brother for me to dominate and control. But in order that I might find above him the creator. Now the other person in the freedom for which he has been created becomes the occasional joy. Whereas he was a nuisance before. That's the beauty of what the gospel brings. Listen, don't love the dream of community more than the actual community God has given you. Don't love the dream, this idealism of community in your head. And when it doesn't match up, you just go, I'm done. I can just go do something else. Man, sit where you're at and engage. Commit. And I think the way we do this is remembering the gospel. It's why Jesus said, love your neighbor as your self. It is remembering who we are in the gospel. First John 1 4 says this, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There's none. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It is the gospel. It is reminding us that I was in darkness and you're in darkness. And only because of King Jesus are we now in the light. And because we were all, we were all sinners, we were all in the same boat to begin with. Guess what? Now we're in a new boat. We have new life. In, and it's not because I'm better than you or you're better than me. It is because of who we are in the gospel. The way to truly engage in gospel community, the way to truly love our neighbor is remembering what Jesus did for me. And we remember what he did for each other. Listen, if you want to build community, you don't drum up people, you don't cook great meals, and you don't have common fun. What you do is you get them to long and yearn and fall deeper in love with King Jesus. I want to close with this. I want to close with this because I want to give you a real-life example of what this looks like. This past October, October 23rd of this year, there was a lady named Hannah Pick Goslar who passed away. Now, I don't read obituaries, but this was on the front page of the New York Times, and so it got my attention. Why in the world is this lady's obituary on the front page? And so I read the story of who this lady was. She died at 93 years old, and in 1933, when she was a young schoolgirl, excuse me, Hannah met a friend. She met another little girl named Anne, and Hannah and Anne became friends, and for the next decade, they go through life enjoying this beautiful picture of community, this beautiful picture of friendship and fellowship, enjoying each other's company. It was beautiful. And then, Nazi Germany happened, and these two girls and their families are rounded up and put in a concentration camp. And as war broke out, as they sit in Bergen-Belsland concentration camp, these two girls are there separated with their family. And they hadn't seen each other. And finally, they reconnect. And Anne writes in her diary, I saw her in front of me, clothed in rags, her face thin and worn. The eyes were very big. She looked so sad. Oh, Anne, why have you deserted me? Help me, help me, rescue me from this. A month later, Anne wrote again about Hannah. Is she still alive? What is she doing? Oh, God, protect her. I see you all the time. I keep seeing you in this place. By then, Hannah, along with her sister Rachel and her parents, were moved to another camp, a work camp in the Netherlands. And eventually, they would stay there for a while, but they were deported back to the original concentration camp in 1944. A year later, in 1945, Hannah had not been in touch with her friend in all that time. And she goes up to the fence. She looks across the fence, and she yells, Is anyone there? Is anyone there? And she hears a voice. And it's this lady. She said, Who are you looking for? She said, I've been looking for my friend, Anne, who I haven't seen in so long. I hope she's still around. And the lady knew Anne. She said, I'll be back. And she goes and she brings Anne to the fence. 
And with Hannah saw Ann and Ann's weakened, familiar voice, malnutrition running all over her body, ill and unhealthy, Hannah's heart broke. And Hannah knew she had to do something, and she said, Ann, what will I need to do to help you? She said, I need food. I actually need food. And she said, okay. So she goes back to the barracks, this women's barracks where Hannah was in, and Hannah gets this food. She starts getting the other ladies in the barracks. And by the way, they don't have anything really either. And they start giving her food, and she gives it to Anne, and she gives it to Anne, and she's giving it to Anne, until one day she goes out to give it to Anne, and Anne's not there. Because Anne and her older sister, Margaret, unfortunately, And it broke Hannah's heart. Hannah and her family eventually was freed from that concentration camp. And the memory of Anne stayed with her the rest of her life. And I'm reading this story in the Times. And it's got a quote by Hannah when she's referring to her friend Anne. And she's just, man, you can see the joy and the happiness and the completeness in her heart. But you know what also happened? That their community, Anne and Hannah's friendship there, didn't just change them too. It changed everyone around. Here's what she said. Hannah talked about the incredible solidarity of the women in her barracks who retained their humanity as I helped Anne. Others saw that and were attracted by it and wanted it too. It gave them hope in a room where they had no They were in darkness and it gave them light. And that's what gospel community does to the world around us. The world that is lonely and hurting and needing hope. And as we live out the gospel and we do it together and we do it in a way where people pay attention to it, they ask questions and they want to know, man, why would you love your neighbor like that? And our answer What would it look like in our lonely world in 2023 as we reset these rhythms? If we live for Jesus together in a community like that. Let me pray. God, you were good. And we don't deserve you. We don't earn you. We did nothing to clean ourselves up. It is only by the finished work of Jesus that we get the humble, loving, amazing, forever privilege of calling you Father. But God, you didn't call us just to be in relationship with you alone. You did it in community throughout Scripture. It was always together, one another. God, you command us over, over 365 times in your word to not fear. Father, I pray if there's any reason people are fearful of engaging like that, I pray, God, they are secured by your love for them. They don't have to perform for someone else. They don't have to measure up for someone else. They can rest that we all come to you broken in need of a Savior. Lord, may this year be a light where we live this out in community. And the world turns and says, what is that? And we point back to you. Thank you, Father. We love you as we continue to worship you. Amen.